Deuteronomy chapter 12. I'll read the last section there and I'll move and preach through the entirety of chapter 13. Uh, Deuteronomy chapter 12 beginning in verse 29 and then reading through verse 18 of chapter 13. When the Lord your God cuts off before you the nations whom you go in to dispossess and you dispossess them and dwell in their land, take care that you be not ensnared to follow them. After they have been destroyed before you, and that you do not inquire about their gods, saying, How did these nations serve their gods, that I may also do the same? You shall not worship the Lord your God in that way, for every abominable thing that the Lord hates they have done for their gods. For they even burn their sons and daughters in the fire to their gods. Everything that I command you, You shall be careful to do. You shall not add to it or take from it. If there is a prophet or a dreamer of dreams and he rises among you and gives you a sign or a wonder and the sign or wonder that he tells you comes to pass and if he says, let us go after other gods which you have not known and let us serve them, you shall not listen to the words of that prophet or that dreamer of dreams for the Lord your God is testing you. To know whether you love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul. You shall walk after the Lord your God and fear him and keep his commandments and obey his voice. And you shall serve him and hold fast to him. But that prophet or that dreamer of dreams shall be put to death. Because he has taught rebellion against the Lord your God. You brought, who brought you out of the land of Egypt and redeemed you out of the house of slavery to make you leave the way in which the Lord your God commanded you to walk so you shall purge the evil from your midst. If your brother, the son of your mother, or your son or your daughter or the wife you embrace or your friend who is as your own soul entices you secretly saying, let us go and serve other gods, which neither you nor your fathers have known. Some of the gods of the peoples who are around you, whether near you or far off from you, from the one end of the earth to the other, you shall not yield to him or listen to him, nor shall your eye pity him, nor shall you spare him, nor shall you conceal him, but you shall kill him. Your hand shall be first against him to put him to death, and afterward the hand of all the people. You shall stone him to death with stones, because he has sought to draw you away from the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. And all Israel shall hear and fear and never again do any such wickedness as this among you. If you hear in one of your cities which the Lord your God is giving you to dwell there, that certain worthless fellows have gone out among you and have drawn away the inhabitants of their cities, saying, Let us go and serve other gods, which you have not known. Then you shall inquire and make search and ask diligently. And behold, if it be true and certain that such an abomination has been done among you, you shall surely put the inhabitants of that city to the sword, devoting it to destruction. All who are in it and its cattle with the edge of the sword... You shall gather all its spoil into the midst of its open square and burn the city and all its spoil with fire. As a whole burnt offering to the Lord your God, it shall be a heap forever. It shall not be built again. None of the devoted things shall stick to your hand. That the Lord may turn from the fierceness of his anger and show you mercy and have compassion on you and multiply you as he swore to your fathers if you obey the voice of the Lord your God. 
keeping all his commandments that I am commanding you today and doing what is right in the sight of the Lord your God. Thus far, the reading of God's word. Let me pray now for the blessing of the preaching of it. Lord, would you grant to us, as you have done so often, every time your word is preached, you by your spirit move in our hearts to bring about the furthering of the work of salvation for many. And even, Lord, condemnation for those who stop up their ears who do not wish to be restored and made alive we ask O Lord that you would grant to us discernment and patience grant to us strength that comes from your word that we might be your holy disciples we pray all these things in your name Amen I want us to remember that as we move through the Old Testament and we come to challenging texts such as these that we are careful that we do not think that the God of the Old Testament is distinct from the God of the New. If you turn to the book of Jude, there's but one chapter. So the book of Jude, chapter 1, verse 5, he says, Now I want to remind you, although you once fully knew it, that Jesus, who saved a people out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed those who do not believe. What we often say is that Jesus in the New Testament is a much nicer version than the God of the Old. But let us not be confused for a moment that this is the same Jesus. And he's not a schizoid. He is not schizophrenic in his nature in dealing with the people of the Old Testament and the people of the New. But we do find between the Testaments, and as Scripture continues to be revealed, a flowering of... The covenant and the way in which the covenant is manifested on earth, how we are to keep covenant and how it is in the New Testament, particularly the Father and the Son together, that is God the Father, God the Son, who is Jesus, send forth the Holy Spirit into the world to bring about a kind of transformation that was that to, up to that point unseen in its scope and grandeur and scale. And as we look at this chapter, I want us to think of Deuteronomy chapter 3, especially in that verse where there is a family member who may draw you away from the Lord. But I also want you to think of Paul's exhortation in the New Testament where he says, if you find yourself married to an unbeliever, you don't get to divorce them. What does Deuteronomy chapter 13 say? Kill them. But in the book of 1 Corinthians, what does Paul say? Convert them that we need to see that the holy war of Deuteronomy and Israel in the land of promise where they do not suffer idolatry is taken up in the New Testament with the ministry and the crusade of the gospel of Jesus Christ. We see this throughout the old and the new. And so when we look at chapters like Deuteronomy chapter 13, I don't want us to think for a moment as we did last week when God talks about or talks about issues related to slavery, we want to handle these difficult texts well. We should never wish that unchristians that we debate don't read Deuteronomy 13. Because if they read Deuteronomy chapter 13, guess what? They're going to poke holes in my faith. And I don't have an answer for them. We need to have answers for these things. In fact, I would encourage you to this. Stop messing with the settled text. I don't mean don't read them. 
the things that are easy to argue. I want you to lean in and press in on these more challenging texts because it is here more than anywhere else that we see the uniqueness and the distinctive nature of Yahweh worship, of Christianity, of covenant faithfulness to the Lord. And that's what I want to look at this evening under these three headings. The fount of immorality, the fount of immorality. Secondly, three threats to true worship, three threats to true worship. And then third, the call to be Teflon, the call to be Teflon. Children, you know what Teflon is? Do they even use Teflon? I think it's one of those chemicals that was ruled toxic. Teflon was once something they coated cooking pans with. It makes your egg just glide right off like magic. The call to be Teflon. Let's look at the first point, though. The fount of immorality. I'll go ahead and play my ace. It's idolatry. From where does moral filth come? Immorality... Reaped is idolatry sown. If you sow the whirlwind or the wind, you reap the whirlwind. The way the psalmist speaks of it is, if you worship idols, you become like those idols. You may ask this question right now as it relates to our current sociological status as a country, as a, as a people. How did we get where we are? I cannot believe that things are happening the way they're happening. I can't believe I just heard what I heard. Where did we, how did we get there? How did this happen? Because we are a nation of idolaters. And the idols that we worship is the integrity of secular man. It is the nobility of a man who has thrown off God, thrown off God systematically. As Nietzsche would say, God is dead. Long live man. And what we will now do since we have thrown off God is we will, like so many um, caterpillars, emerge from the cocoon, butterflies free of the constraints of divine revelation and tyrannical religious tradition. How are we doing? How are we doing? If you take the temperature of our culture, what do you see? You see a culture unshackled by religious constraints. And when I say religious, I mean the constraints of a conviction that God is the one who commands us how to live. And so all of the depraved conduct and the ideological confusion and the moral waywardness is the reaping of sowing idolatry. And who is the God in the secular world? You are. Your pleasures. Your bank account. You are the center. And the problem is, when you have 350 million kings or gods living together, there will be some chaos. I'm not saying all of you are doing this actively. I'm saying the disposition, the tendency of Sinful man is to place himself upon the throne of life. And so this chaos of moral insanity is the product of active idolatry. For this reason, worship is upstream from everything. Everything. 
Uh, if you ever go raft down the Nantahala, I don't know if you've any of you done this. It's some of the coldest water on the East Coast. It is shocking. It is painful. Your skin will begin to itch and your joints will begin to throb. And the reason why the Nantahala is so cold is because it comes from the very bottom of Lake Nantahala where the sun don't shine. And it is freezing down there. And that water comes straight out of the bottom of that lake, goes down the river, and you can go raft on one of the coldest bodies of water on the East Coast. At least even in the summer. It's always cold. It's in the 40s. High 40s, low 50s, year-round. It's freezing. It is what it is because of where it comes from. The worship or what you worship determines what you become. And so oftentimes, maybe you've heard this lately by political commentators, politics is downstream from culture. Well, culture is downstream from worship. Worship sets the stage. And I don't mean just Lord's Day worship, though Lord's Day worship is part of that. It is the high watermark of all Christian worship. What we do here affects what we do out there. What we do on Sunday affects Monday to Saturday. But who we are as worshipers, whom we choose to follow, the one we choose to dedicate our lives to will affect not just our lives, but the collection of all of those determined upon who they worship. And if we worship pleasure, if you worship power, if you worship the creation and not the creator, you end up with a system that is inverted in contrast to what God has designed. Because the principle of Scripture is clear. You become... What you worship. You become what you behold. Psalmist says this in Psalm 115 and 135. You become, or all those who worship them become like them. He's just spoken of these idols made of wood and stone, and they get thrown in the fire. What happens? They burn. You become what you worship. This principle is as true as it gets. And all of life resounds with this principle. And so as the Lord is talking through, uh, through his servant Moses to his people, he is saying, when you get to the land, verse 29, and when God cuts these nations off from the earth, don't dig up their false gods. Don't go back to the worship of Egypt and don't claim for yourself the habits and exercises of these pagans. Take care that you be not ensnared to follow them. Why would we follow them? Why did Israel long to go back to Egypt? Because the path of Christian discipleship is hard. And because the call of subservancy to idols is in fact easy. You do it because you want to. You do it because sin is fun. It brings some pleasure and satisfaction. Certainly more at times than the self-sacrifice that is required and the discipline to follow after God and do his holy will because every inclination of the sinful human heart is to do the very thing that you were told not to do or not to do the very thing that you were told to do. 
Sin loves rebellion. And so as Israel is going into the land, the tendency will be to pick up those things that were committed to destruction by God. But you must understand that the decay that will take place in you, O Israel, will come about by the embracing of idolatry. And now the Lord makes another point, and it begins with chapter 13. And we find in verses 1 through 5, and in verses 6 through 11, and in verses 12 through 18, three threats to true worship. Or you might say three threats to true Christian discipleship. The first are false prophets. So when Moses went to the land of Egypt, and he was told by God, when the Pharaoh, or the messengers of Pharaoh asked, who sent you? You are to say, I am. yod heh Yahweh sent you, or Adonai, as he is called. And when you do that, you are to, in the sort of introductory meeting, throw down your staff, and that staff will turn to a serpent. Well, what happened? The magicians of Egypt. Now, when I say magician, don't think Harry Potter. Think demonic occult activity. These magicians also threw down their staffs, and guess what? They also turned to serpents. Now, if you were there in the court at that moment, and you saw what was going on, you would go, well, first of all, the first serpent go, <gasps> and then the next three appear, whoa, what's going to happen? It's a showdown. In fact, the first part of Egypt is a showdown between the powers of the gods of Egypt, who are no gods, they are but demons, Fallen angels, creatures made by God with power, but power limited by their own creatureliness, yet powerful enough to turn a wooden staff into a serpent. But what did Moses' staff do? It ate the other serpents. Wow. I love it. These are the stories. Don't, don't show your kids veggie tales. Read them the Bible. Veggie Tales takes all the teeth out of Scripture, and you need the teeth. You need the hook, and you need the claw, because God is teaching us He will not abide the false gods of this earth. I'm not saying scare your children. I'm saying let them see a God who is powerful. And so that serpent eats the others. It's a taste of what's to come. And then for the the following ten plagues, what God shows Israel is these Egyptian gods are not worthy of your time. Don't worship these gods. And he's showing the Egyptians what you got. Bring it. And in fact, the icing on the cake, the cherry on the top of the sundae, is performed at the Red Sea. The Pharaoh says, after God kills his own son, get out of here. In his grief and anger, the seed of the serpent says to the people of God, leave. And they leave, but then he has a change of heart. He just lost his workforce. 1.6 million slave laborers. And there they are, walking out of Egypt with gold and silver and even other Egyptians who are going with them because they were convinced of the power of Yahweh. And they get to the Red Sea, and though they have seen all of these things, they begin to panic because they're 
butted up against a big body of water that they get, get past and they turn around and they see Pharaoh and all of the soldiers of Egypt coming toward them. And they're trembling in their boots or sandals or whatever they were wearing. And God does another mighty miracle. He parts the waters. Israel goes through the Red Sea. And after Israel goes through, the nation of the soldiers of Egypt are passing through and God closes the waters upon them. It's another water narrative event in which God shows that through his consecrating power, he will deliver his people safely to himself. And Israel saw all of this, and yet the tendency of their hearts was to do what? To go back to their abusers. This is called the insane Stockholm Syndrome of sin. We like our chains as long as we get to eat some good stuff. It's amazing what we will ingest in terms of moral filth if it brings us even the smallest amount of pleasure. And there will be those who come to you, Israel, and they will with signs and wonders say, listen, listen. But they will draw you away from me. They will speak sweet words. They will do powerful things. But the testimony of whether or not you should listen to them has everything to do with what they say. We like power, don't we? In fact, what is the equivalent today? Fame? Followers? Celebrity? Batting average? Does anybody watch baseball anymore? I don't even know. (laughs) But you know what I mean. Biceps? Symmetrical facial structure? We look at these things and we go, well, he's good looking. He must be right about a lot of things. Right? We are enchanted by power. We are enchanted by persuasion and glory. And what other people say, those who've been baptized by the masses, these are the kinds of people we should listen to for X reason. But what Moses says to Israel is, all right, they may show power, but what are they preaching? What are they saying? Are they calling you to repentance And faith in the covenant promises that God has shown. For the Lord your God is testing you. Wait a second. God raises up silver-tongued heathens in order to see whether or not he has your affections. God is sovereignly bringing about those who say strange things... But boy, it's packaged so well. Are you for God or not? It's a test. It's a test of resolve. But when you discover that they are in fact not the genuine article, what are you to do? You're not to worship them. You are to commit them to destruction. You are Israel to do the work of destroying those who would allure you back into spiritual enslavement. Now, how do we apply this today? Well, as it relates to some idols, kill them. There are some things that you can morally and legally get away with destroying. When Christ says in the New Testament, if your eye causes you to sin, 
Just get a spoon and just get in there really good and just, just get that thing on out of there. Or if your hand causes you to sin, I want you to go into the kitchen, pull out that electric carving knife, and just go right at it. Can you imagine? Is Christ proclaiming the spiritual act of mutilation? No. But what he is saying is this. Better for you to do that and go to heaven than not and go to hell whole. Christ is calling for a radical perspective of the dangers of sin. Because what is our tendency? In our hearts, have you ever been to a home where they actually have idols on shelves? Have you been to any of these homes? I've been to those homes. I've been to little houses in China where there's a little fat, squatting, smiling Buddha. And he's just there. And there's a little bit of incense burning to him all the time. It's superstition. It's not even really a serious religion. But it certainly robs God of glory. And we do this. We have little shelves in our heart. where We have little gods that we serve. Little sin issues, moral imperfections that we say, you know, I think I could get away with just a little shelf, right? A little thing. It's not that big of a deal. Nobody knows. And I can sort of be normal in public and have this back home. God is saying, no, 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 no. Commit it all to destruction. Do not be led astray by those who come with power, but a message that is contrary to the one that has been delivered to them at Sinai. And not only false prophets in verse 1 through 5, but also family connections. Moses goes even deeper that there will come time when you and your relationship with your family members will find that you don't worship the same God. And your family members will say to you, If you want to be a member of this family, if you want our affection, you must do this. You must worship our gods. Now, in cultures where, for the most part, something like Christianity is the sort of the big religion, I want you to think about what life might be like in the 1040 window. Do you know what the 1040 window is? It's that window in which many of the unreached nations reside. Think about coming to faith in Christ in Iran. Someone comes, he preaches the gospel, and you're the only member of your family, and you're a woman. And you believe. What do you do? Your husband doesn't believe. Maybe your father, your mother, your siblings. What happens to infidels in Iran? Death to the infidel. Paul in 1 Corinthians says, if you find yourself married to an unbeliever, what is the mission? Well, your family becomes the mission field. And the reason why that call is changed or it is transformed over time through the progression of Revelation from Deuteronomy chapter 13 to 1 Corinthians 
is that the Holy Spirit has been sent into the world and now we have been given a call that is a kind of similar crusade wherein the idols of our homes are to be put to death and the way in which they are to be put to death is by the work of the proclamation of the gospel in word and deed. But for those who are being tempted, the greatest source of temptation is your spouse. It is your children. It is your father or your mother, your brother or your sister. It is hard to be the only Christian in your home. Which is why we are given the exhortation in the Gospels, don't be unequally yoked together with an unbeliever. Why? Because it is easy to compromise covenant faithfulness when those whom you are closest to care nothing for the glory of God. And they may not say it day after day after day, but what they are saying with their lives is, found in verse 6, let us go and serve other gods. Do you do this even as a Christian in your own homes? Fathers, the heart of covenant faithfulness is what? Let us go to the house of God. Let us serve the one true God. Let us seek him with all of our hearts. Let us go, not and serve other gods, but let us go to the house of God and there bring our offerings to him. We must commit even those who are nearest to us to destruction or through the ministry now of the gospel, seek their good. But what we must be willing to do is if there is no transformation in the life even of our family members, we must be willing to serve Christ first even if it costs us intimacy and peace with our family members. This is where the strongest pressure comes from, doesn't it? From those who are nearest to our hearts already. And then let's look at verse 12 and verse 18. Not just family, not just false prophet, but false teachers. There's a difference between false prophets and false teachers in this way. A prophet is someone who comes doing signs and wonders. A teacher is just someone who comes speaking And we see these things even in the New Testament. Paul, time and again, says, uh, those false teachers in your midst, you must silence them. But if you look at verse 12, if you hear in one of your cities, which the Lord your God is giving you to dwell there, that certain worthless fellows have gone out among you and drawn away the inhabitants of their city, saying, let us go and serve other gods which you have not known. So Moses is saying, let's say this has happened already. There is a city... A tribe, a territory filled with false teachers who have brought that city away. Then you go in, you inquire as to what is being taught, and then you address that false doctrine. You seek to bring about, through the communication of true doctrine, transformation. Now the assumption in all three of these cases is, apart from rebuke, and reproof, if there is hardened unbelief and the continuation of idolatry, you must commit them to destruction. We do not take holiness seriously enough. Again, we think that we can abide even within the church the proclamation of the gospel other than the gospel of Jesus Christ. Let's say for a moment that even within the church of Jesus Christ, there is a denomination, 
a congregation. Someone who says Christ first and yet the content of their teaching and their preaching does not exalt Christ. What are we to do? We are to go in. We are to investigate what is being taught. And if it is idolatry, we must put an end to that teaching. Paul says you you cut it off at the source. You end that which will bring people to death. And not just death, eternal damnation. Now here is where we as modern men often think that we are more righteous than God. We are to A, be grateful for the gift of the Holy Spirit. That God is patient now in ways that we do not see the patience of God exhibited in Deuteronomy chapter 13. That does not mean that Jesus was not patient in Deuteronomy chapter 13. What it means is this. That the, that the nation state of Israel was given the task of judge there for a time which Christ now takes up. And Christ now says what? Through the ministry of the cross of Jesus Christ, my cross, and through the Holy Spirit poured out in all of the earth, what we are doing is we are waging the same kind of war, a holy war, but through a different means. Not by the sword of men, but by the sword of the Holy Spirit and by the word of God preached, the way in which you silence false prophets, bad actors in your family, and false teachers is you bring about the judgment of the true knowing and preaching and teaching of God's holy and inspired word. And what God will do by his Holy Spirit is he will separate the sheep from the goats, the wheat from the tares, and he will bring about holiness in the church. Now, the way that it manifests itself now is through church discipline. If you at Reformation OPC decide to start influencing people with your heretical teachings, you can be assured that the session of this church will say, get out or submit to Lord Jesus. If you can't do the latter, you must do the former. Either you surrender to the true gospel of Jesus Christ and its transforming, life-saving power, or you must leave. The call is to be, lastly, Teflon. Look at this, verse 17. None of the devoted things, that is, those things that are devoted to destruction, shall stick to your hand. Think Lot's wife for a moment. What happened to Lot's wife? Do you know the story? Of course you know the story. Lot and his wife are living in San Francisco. I mean, Sodom and Gomorrah. Charlotte. I'm an East Coaster. I can make fun of the West Coast. I love San Francisco. It's one of the most beautiful cities I've ever been in, but I was in it 20 years ago. I hear it's easy to step on needles now. Think of Sodom and Gomorrah, a land devoted to destruction. And God even said directly to Lot and to his family, get out of the city. I'm going to rain hellfire down upon it. Was God justified in doing that? You better believe it. Is God just in using Israel to bring about condemnation to idolaters in Deuteronomy chapter 13? You better believe it. But God now through his son by the Holy Spirit has provided more opportunities for mercy because the spirit has been sent out into the world to bring about transformation. Not by the sword, but through regeneration. 
And when he told Lot and his wife, get out of the city and don't look back, what was she doing? Why did she look back? Because that was her home and her heart. Why did Israel, why did Israel receive the condemnation of God in the wilderness and in the land? Because they were, you know, that sort of moment in the movie, leaning, looking back, reaching out for that which was devoted to destruction. And the tendency, the tendency is when you see the world in ash, you see, oh, there's a little bit of money left in that burn pile. Just gonna... And you find yourself doing what? Reaching for it. God said time and time again, when I tell you to commit those cities for destruction, do not leave one stone on another. But the tendency is to save a little bit, to take a little bit and put it in your tent. What happened to that family? They were swallowed up by a hole in the ground. Don't lay hold. When I say Teflon, I don't mean, don't love the world that God has made. Love it. I don't mean, don't love the unbelievers that are in the world. Love them and go to them. I'm saying, don't be enticed by their idolatry. Don't marry them. Don't be persuaded by the attractiveness of the false gospels of this world. And don't listen to those teachers who seek to lead you away from Christ. It's a serious call. It's a serious call. If your eye causes you to sin, pluck it out. It is better for you to go into heaven with one eye than into hell with two. Take the call to holiness seriously. Joshua says in Joshua 6, But you, keep yourselves from these things devoted to destruction, lest when you have devoted them you take any of the devoted things and make the camp of Israel a thing for destruction itself and bring trouble upon it. The way this vow manifests itself, even in our marriages, is forsaking all others. You've heard this in weddings. Forsaking all others. You cling to one another. That is the call of covenant faithfulness to the Lord. It is to cling to him, to hold fast to Christ, and to let go of the things of the world. I don't mean don't enjoy them. I mean don't worship them. Don't make them your God. Don't use them in the worship of our God. But if you obey, verse 18, the voice of the Lord your God, keeping all his commandments that I am commanding you today, and doing right is in the, what is right in the sight of the Lord your God, he will have compassion And he will multiply you. The compassion and the multiplication of the church of the Lord Jesus Christ is contingent upon our holding fast to him and letting go of the things of this world. Let's pray.